0: I'm J.G. Michael, and this is Parallax Views.
1: Hello, this is Mike Swanson, in a few moments you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire, and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War.
0: Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, the War Nerd, the forty two group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace and the Mirror Framework, M E E R Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're taking a break from all the politics to talk pop culture, specifically 70s Black Exploitation Cinema, and its legacy with Thaddeus Russell and Kamasi Hill, who are going to be teaching a course at Renegade University starting this Tuesday on the subject. We're gonna be talking about a number of the films. They will be covering in that course, including Shaft, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Superfly, Foxy Brown, and many more. In addition, we'll discuss the far reaching influence of Black Exploitation cinema on pop culture with a special focus on hip hop, the deriding of black exploitation films by the NAACP. In the 1970s and much much more and with that in mind let's get right to the conversation with thad russell and kamasi hill of renegade university welcome to parallax views kamasi hill and Thaddeus russell of renegade university uh you're both going to be teaching a course on exploitation Films. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me, um, and us. Yeah, you call me Thad, though. So,
0: uh, Thad, maybe you could give a little bit of background on how Renegade University came to be, in case I have listeners that are uh, unfamiliar. Although, I-, I suspect a lot of people will be familiar, because I, I used to work at uh, Zero Books with uh, Doug Lane and Cedar and oh. Barn, and you're friendly with them. So I-, I think some of my listeners will know, but I may have oh. some newbies. <laughs>
2: Oh, I wish we had talked about that. I didn't know who you were. And I didn't realize that, okay, I didn't know you were connected to Doug. And so, and Kamasi doesn't know about this, but um, Zero Books is this really cool publisher um, that's an independent publisher that does like really edgy theoretical stuff on the left. um, But like very, very sophisticated. Like I've had, I think like six um, Zero Books authors on my show Cause that's how cool I think they are. So yeah, it's, this is good stuff. So did you work for, were you an editor there with Doug? Yeah, I actually uh, worked on a show called alternatives with uh, C. Derek Farn uh,
0: where we talked about like sort of whether counterculture exists in the, you know, uh,
2: internet age. Oh, Derek. Okay. Yeah. I love Derek. Derek was on my show. Yeah. Derek is a genius. I I fucking love Derek. Okay, cool. All right. I didn't realize you should have told me this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, so Renegade University, um, I had a, uh, a pretty long career as an academic, um, about 25 years starting Columbia PhD program in history, and then taught at Columbia, then Barnard, then a string of colleges across the country over the next couple of decades. Um, during that time, I started to just think differently <laughs> than when I entered And I saw American history and I saw a lot of stuff just differently. And I developed a bunch of weird ideas that I've made into lectures, which ultimately became a renegade history of the United States, the book that I'm most known for. Um, And the core, and this is relevant to our discussion is the core renegade history. A lot of people don't know this renegade history in the United States began actually as a book about the civil rights movement. Um, I was writing, I was working on a big critique of the civil rights movement at the time and i started to focus on the assimilationism of it the respectability politics of it and i wanted to sort of look at the at sexuality in that because no one had ever looked at like what the relationship was between the civil rights movement and sexuality right that's just not even thought about it's like how is that relevant who cares about so you know they're marching across bridges trying to desegregate the south who cares about their sex lives so what I did was I looked at black popular culture, the 1940s and 1950s, right at the emergence of the movement um, and like what was going on. And the thing that <laughs> is kind of amazing, uh, I, I looked at Jet and Ebony magazines, which were weekly and like damn near like pfft, 90% of the African-American population read one or the other at some point. You know what I mean? This was like, this was time and news week for black people in this country. So if you were in one of those magazines you were like the biggest celebrity there is so i looked at those i researched those in the 40s and 50s right um which and this is amazing no historian to that point had ever used those sources really no historian had ever gone through jet and ebony in any serious systematic way i was cranking through microfilm for like months i went through every single issue anyway so here's what i found I found in every goddamn issue for about 10 years in the 40s and 50s, big huge photo essays and articles and center spreads on all these drag balls that were happening in Harlem, Southside Chicago, downtown LA, all the black neighborhoods, and then like across the South and Birmingham, New Orleans, and you know, Memphis, and what? Like there were the drag queens, you know, and these were like celebrated heroes among ordinary black working class people and the articles would kind of make fun of them a little bit, a little bit, but it was not negative coverage. And this was like every week they were covering these drag balls. Then also I found out that the two biggest celebrities in black America at that time, um, in the clergy and, and Kamasi, um, his PhD is on, is in religion and he's a special specialist in this, um, were two Pentecostal preachers named prophet Jones and, and sweet daddy grace prophet jones was as queer as a three dollar bill lived with his boyfriend He had a a whole lot lot of
1: three dollar bills too you know
2: (laughs) and he wore like and he wore like white mink coats and he had a white chauffeur and he lived in a mansion in detroit that he colored differently all the time and everybody knew he was gay and sweet daddy grace had like long fingernails and long hair and also a white chauffeur and like was unashamed of money materialism the good life leisure all that stuff Anyway, so that's and then the civil rights movement comes along and crushes all of that um, in various ways. They literally set up Prophet Jones with an undercover cop who offered to give him fellatio and then he went to prison for that. You know, I mean, um, and they just replaced these queer, flamboyant black figures in sort of black popular culture with. The guys in the business suits who were talking about citizenship and integration and Uncle Sam, you know Martin Luther King, etc. So that kind of started. Like that was the beginning of what became renegade history. So for me, like black culture, and start. Let me say that again. Black. I, I use the term black working class culture. Um, Robin Kelly, who's a very great um, historian, who sort of kind of turned me on to doing that. I think that's the best way to sort of categorize in shorthand, like what I'm talking about, like the particular well, culture. Why
0: is that? Well, why the yeah. distinction there? Why black working class culture?
2: Well, so so like within African-American history, like one of the main um, themes, I guess, is, and this is really amazingly pretty much only known among people who specialize in this field. It's just kind of ridiculous, but it's true. The like 200 year long fight between what we call like the black middle-class or the respect who practice respectability politics. These are the words we use now, right. On the one hand versus, you know, basically everyone else, which is what Robin Kelly and I and Kamasi and others, like say, it called black working-class culture, just because for me, working-class just simply means non-bourgeois right and so the respectability politics is like classic bourgeois politics right that's what it's about right it comes out of the 19th century with the rise of the bourgeoisie in the west and and the rising black middle class of that time and there was one just did did what everybody else was doing was you know taking on these bourgeois norms meanwhile like african-americans and other working class people were largely ignoring those norms and going and doing stuff they weren't supposed to do you know watch watching movies that were not, you know, good and going to Coney Island and having sex and blah 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 blah. And being gay. Um so that's the um that's the thing. That's where it began. And so this black exploitation course is absolutely, you know, stems from this long, very long project of mine. Um but Kamasi, you know, actually I'm dying to hear like your story and how like you're so
1: I would say um My journey into, uh, uh, you know, learning and studying about Black exploitation films started with, you know, the invention of the VCR and being a, a kid who was born in the 70s but came of age in the 80s. So all of my first, you know, views of Black exploitation films came sneaking uh, into you know my father's bedroom, watching the movies that he rented or the movies that he owned on a VHS cassette tape, right? Um, my parents were black nationalists, so the movies that I was allowed to watch with them were all of the the black exploitation films that had some some sort of explicit black nationalist political kind of you know message. Um, but you know, as a, as a kid, I'm, I want to see you know, some of the more salacious, you know, movies. I I don't, I'm not necessarily interested in all of these, you know, these political messages with these, these heavy themes. I'm, I'm, you know, I want to be entertained. And when, when I discovered was, I I would say the first film that I, that really got me into black exploitation films was Cooley High. And it was 1975 movie filmed right here in the city of Yeah, so I was saying Cooley High is a a high school or was a high school here in the Chicago area. Um, And um, um, it was uh, based off of the experiences of two young men who were just trying to navigate, you know, living on the South side of Chicago and going to school on the South side of Chicago. And as a, I mean, not as a young person watching two teenagers you know, try to talk to women and and sneak out of school and all of these things within the context of what was actually happening in, in Chicago, because um, the movie wasn't really explicitly political. It was kind of a coming of age story. Right. And um, I just I, I fell in love with it. And then I started really getting into, you know, some of the other, you know, the classics. Um, so I literally went from Cooley High to 1971's Melvin Van Peoples' Sweet, sweet Best Bad Hesong. song, Right. And so I started getting into the into the films, just watching them on my VCR. Then this is what happened. Once I got to college, I became a film major. And I went to Howard University, very respectable HBCU. And all of my black film professors hated black. Exploitation.
2: Mm-hmm. There it is.
1: Right. So, you know, and um, and all of them were, you know, um, Pretty menial, marginally successful, black filmmakers on the independent circuit. You know, they had graduated from film school and they did all of these, you know, all these decent films, which the vast majority of them had some type of explicit political meaning. They were a message. They weren't. They weren't necessarily entertaining. And so, when we as students would screen our short films, they hated the fact that our our, our short films were entertaining. And they really wanted to make make us make these kind of message movies. And I I just couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And at 18, 19, I didn't necessarily have the language to articulate why that was problematic for me. I knew it was kind of like, you know, I just kind of felt it was like old people dissing us as young people. Then I, you know, started to understand what that was articulating, that there is this disconnect between the the kind of Black middle-class bourgeois elite ideas of who Black people should be versus the working class um, Black identities that are just trying to live. They're not necessarily good, bad, you know, they're just trying to live their lives, right? And the experiences of Black working class folks were way more evident. Some of the experiences or the interests uh, of Black uh, uh, working class were more evident in some of the early Black exploitation films. Um, And, and so, you know, going to film school at a black college in the 90s, we didn't even look at the black exploitation films at all. Like it was like there was no discussion about them about their value, about their importance. And I remember this is the last thing I'll say, I remember reading a book that they gave to us by Donald Bogle called Tom Coon's <laughs> Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks. And it is one of the most horrible <laughs> like it's a good it's a good book in the sense that he chronicles black film history but he's horribly like uh judgmental and and you know and heavy-handed when it comes to his interpretation of black exploitation films um and i was just and and that was the that was the first time that, that i started to to realize this is not simply like old folks hating on young folks this is a brand of politics that are seeping into art in a way that i found totally problematic and so uh i had to re-watch a lot of these uh re-watch and then watch some of these black exploitation films once i got into my teens and ever since then it's been a love
0: fest i love them <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah it's it's funny for me i think see I, I was after the vcr era so i actually first discovered i'm uh 31 so oh, wow okay, yeah. but uh i i so I, I found all these black exploitation movies uh, when video on demand was just starting out and they had a whole month of exploitation movies on this one video on demand thing uh, with our cable provider. So I was mm-hmm. watching like every Pam Greer movie. And, oh, yeah. I, you know, at a very young age, <laughs> that affects a man. Right. Yes, uh, it but, does. <laughs> you know, I, you know, when I watched it. I was, like, thinking to myself, oh, this is, like, badass. This is, uh, you know, Pam Greer is, like, this kick-ass female. In a way, I thought it was, like, very empowering uh, with regards to, like, the, the um, you know, the character she was playing. I thought there was something, like, very feminist about it, very um, Black empowerment about it. But I guess there's also the other side to that where, uh, you know, the NAACP, for instance, derided the films as, uh, they derided it as a, uh, proliferating offenses, these films. Could you talk a little bit about that? Why, why were these films so hated? Because in some ways they seem empowering. (laughs) So I'm going to go back. Um, so the NAACP has had its
1: eye on Hollywood since its inception. (laughs) So, you know, Mm. so in all fairness to the NAACP, I want to say that, you know, you know, they're not Johnny come lately's, as problematic as some of their politics are, they've been watching. They've been watching Hollywood for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first time they really stepped on the scene was when it came to their response to D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation.
2: Right. Right. So they've been,
1: you know, they've been watching black films for a long time. The NAACP right. has a specific aim, and their aim is to address some of the, the 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 legal issues that that are happening within the black community, specifically within certain segments of the black community. The problem is the NAACP, and, and that's what the NAACP has done and done well. They don't they don't have any business. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, watching and critiquing black films. That's not what they do. So when they step into the arena trying to, you know, engage um, the aesthetics, the messages, the meanings, the all of these things about black films, they're way, way, way out of their league. Um, so I, I, what I will say, though, is this the the. Um, the 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 biggest issue isn't simply the, the NAACP when it came to black films, it's really the mainstream civil rights establishment. Yep. So, um, which, which, in, which is inclusive of the NAACP. Um, um, and I would, I would argue too, to a certain extent, you know, even the black Panthers had some issues with some of the black, the black, uh, the <laughs> black um, exploitation films. And we can, and I'm, we're going to talk about this in our course with in, in mm-hmm. terms of their their uh relationship with the film The Mac, you know, mm-hmm. that, that came out in Oakland, California, where the the Black Panthers first emerged. Mm-hmm. And I think what what so let me just kind of state what the NAACP's articulate what they articulated their problem was, and why that articulation of the problem is a problem. So the NAACP um uh, and the middle class, the Black middle class establishment, is essentially trying to argue about two things. Number one. Um, stereo, historic stereotypes of African-Americans are problematic. And then number two, the reinforcement of uh, tropes that uh, are attempting to criminalize or celebrate criminal activity or deviant behavior um, serve to further put black, black people in a in a negative light. The problem with those critiques is that they're so flat, right? And then on top of that, um, it's clear that they're not really watching the movies. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, because they're so, you take a character, I'll give you a perfect example. You take a character like um, uh, um, uh, Cleopatra Jones, Tamara Dobson's character in Cleopatra Jones. That film is so layered, right? You have the, 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 the street folks in the film you have the, the kind of quasi Black Panther folks. You know, she's 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 in a, a romantic relationship with a guy who's like a head of this kind of Black nationalist, you know, organization. You have Tamara Dobson herself. Her character Cleopatra Jones is a fucking CIA agent, <laughs> right? You have um, uh, um, folks... Uh, working class black folks who are, who are, uh, you know, who who have like karate studios, who have like small black businesses. Mm. You have all these people who she's engaged with mm. all at the same time. That's multiple layers of meaning and identities and, you know, and things that are going on to render that flat and say, Oh, this is just black stereotypes. You're not even watching the film. You know, I mean, you, if the NAACP really wanted to critique um. <clears throat> Patrick Jones critique that she's a she's a freaking CIA agent in the 1970s <laughs> that's doing horrible things in Africa right I mean you know like critique that there's no mention of that whatsoever right which is uh, you know I will say this uh, you know not to not to Thad Thad is one of the one of the people who really started to get me to understand and to really keep my eye on foreign policy. Right. So like, you know, that's a, a major critique of the film that the know NAACP and these types of organizations don't address. So it's just a flat, you know, kind of, you know, interpretation of, of these films and they don't really do service and justice to it whatsoever.
0: So there's so many of these films too, you know, I, I mean, there's everything from, you know, uh, coffee and Foxy Brown to, uh, you know, Blackula um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I love all these movies, but you guys could only uh, cover so many of them in your course. Uh, so, what was the impetus for the seven films that you guys decided to explore? Um, I was particularly <laughs> interested in the uh, the first three: um, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Shaft, and uh, mm-hmm. Superfly.
2: Yeah, we went back and forth on this a few times, and I had to I had to fight um, oh. because Kamasi yeah. didn't want. He he was gonna keep Pam Greer out of this course somehow. Like, I don't know what he somehow lost. <laughs> yeah, I was his gonna line. say,
0: where's He's, Pam Greer at?
2: No, she's in, she's in. We put Foxy Brown in. So we're gonna do Foxy we Brown. Do you, no, put- see, but but then the thing is when he was just talking about Cleopatra Jones just now, I was like, God damn it, we shouldn't have taken Cleopatra Jones out because it's so layered and so important. But anyway, um, well, some are obvious choices. So sweet, sweet back is, you know, you pretty much universally considered to be like the original uh, exploitation film and Van Peebles certainly is a very key, key figure in the whole thing. Um, it's also just a fascinating film. I mean, it's just weird as hell and in all sorts of ways that are just so shocking to a person nowadays. I mean, and especially anybody under the age of like what 30 or 40, I think these films are just like from another planet and they're going to be, they're just so incredible. You just sort of can't believe that this was happening in Hollywood at ever. You just can't believe they're showing these things and saying these things in a, you know, in a studio movie that was watched by, you know, millions and millions of Americans. I mean, like, so um, I I was going to say, I even think that's true of of a movie like the original
0: Shaft in a lot of ways, like, which is, which is
2: the most mainstream respectable by far of all. But Even that
0: one, like, I, I feel like it's like going through a time warp or something, you know?
2: Totally. Yeah. But I mean, like just what's allowed, I mean, in these movies. So so some had to be chosen. Sweet, sweet back had to be in there. Superfly, of course, is like also um, just iconic. It's everyone considers it, you know. And for me, by the way, just a side note. So I've always said this Superfly in terms of production values, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's not the greatest work of cinematic art. But the politics of that movie. Those are my politics. Those are my politics. The guy. He makes money selling drugs, <laughs> he defeats um, the cops, and then he leaves the drug trade rich, alive and healthy with a life in front of him, off into the sunset. Like, how is that not, you know, utopia? But anyway, <laughs> so well, Superfly and then Shaft, because it's representative of the kind of respectable um, wing of the exploitation genre. And then Kamasi, you're going to say something?
1: I was just going to say, just as a as a side note, um, I think it's important to, to underscore this because I don't want to I don't want to I, I, I want to actually highlight this because I think it's important. I don't know if we'll get to it deep in the course, but I want to say this at least now. Mm. Um, so the first three films um, that that just talked about. Are arguably not only the most important, but in terms of music, aesthetically.
2: Oh my God! But yeah, the
1: soundtracks represent create the foundation for sampling of of, of hip hop oh. music for the next three decades. Oh
2: my God! Yeah. So you're right. talking
1: about <clears throat> Sweetback right. Badass song is scored by a unknown group at the time called Earth Wind Earth, and Fire. Wind and Fire. <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Uh, Superfly is 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 scored by. Um, Curtis Mayfield, who does several black exploitation films, by the
3: mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. And
0: then Shaft is scored by Isaac Hayes. And mm-hmm. then starts starring in some of these films. Yeah, exactly. Like Truck Turner and yeah, yeah. go But on you though. can't listen to any
1: of those films. The, listen to aesthetically, musically, the score and the soundtrack. You can't listen to any of those films and be a hip hop fan and not be, not understand exactly what, why these films are so why they have so uh, so much import in today's
2: yeah but even more and this is very gen x of me but like if you think especially of the golden age hip-hop yes like yeah. if you think of 90s and early and 2000s early 2000s that music man the the crossover how much they borrowed from black exploitation films is just ridiculous then there's quentin tarantino we Absolutely. haven't even talked about that. His entire fucking career, and he'll he'll be the first to tell you, which yes, you know, mad credit to him for for that. You know, he always is upfront about how black exploitation is like he's he's taking from it. Um, wow. but it, I mean, but it appears in so many ways. I mean, black exploitation in so many ways. But I I wanted to say um something about. Like, I want to get like down to the really controversial shit here, okay? Like at the at the heart of this, we kind of. We haven't quite like nailed it. Kamasi was kind of talking around this a bit, but like um, about stereotypes, right? Black stereotypes, um, the depiction of them, what to do about that? Do you deny? Do you deny the stereotype and just say it's an absolute fiction, right? Um, uh, <laughs> which is what they do, right? That's what the civil rights, you know, civil rights leadership would do. Or do you say, um, well, let's look at the behavior? I mean, okay, drug dealing, Superfly, the main character, drug dealer. Um, are there bad things associated with drug dealing? For sure. Although I would say probably all of them are because it's illegal, but whatever. I mean, he does some not so cool things as a drug dealer, you know, like encouraging people to shoot heroin into their arms. I mean, you know. But, um, then again, like he's also helping people in so many ways, and he's bringing so much money in, and he's using his money in so many different ways that are so helpful and uh, also newsflash America, drugs feel good, they feel good no, f- they feel good to people who suffer from life under advanced industrial capitalism, you know um, they feel good to people who are alienated in their lives in all the ways we'd feel, right. And we now know, thanks to the work of Carl Hart, who at Columbia University, just below Harlem, right? And and Gabor Mate and others, you know, we know that that's- yeah, Carl is,
0: Hart did the work on, um, I think, neuroscience and amphetamines and all that stuff?
2: All of it, no, no. I mean, Carl's whole thing is that he's shown with data that these drugs are way, way, way less harmful and addictive than we've been led to believe by who? The drug warriors, the people who put two point three million people in prison these days, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, but then, like, but then, but then, there's the whole the culture created by drug dealers, right? Think about the cultures created by drug dealers, beginning really in the 1950s, but then all the way through the 60s and 70s, black exploitation, and to the present day, right? yo every one of us basically is wearing something right now that probably comes from a drug that was you know invented by some drug dealer some style something or some slang and then there's sexuality all right and this is where it gets you know the most dangerous and this is really why i was fired from academia because i was talking about black sexuality and you're not allowed to do that especially if you're a white guy um well here's the thesis i've made in my work um and others too i'm not the only one but i just get i think i made it loudest Black, working-class culture dating back to slavery, um, certainly early 19th century slavery, when there's a large, a relatively large slave population in the United States, has been relatively um, freer <laughs> uh, around sexual norms than the dominant, especially in the 19th century, white Puritan culture. I mean, and this shouldn't even be like. This should be just like obvious common sense to people, right? We're talking about like the infamous, you know, the famous Puritan culture that that defined American culture in the 19th century, which is famously repressive toward sexuality, versus the culture of slaves, you know, who had no relationship to Puritanism. Of course, why would they? Um, and also, much of their culture was derived from West African cultures, which things like you know that you could actually bend your knees and elbows when you were dancing and that was okay i mean goodness gracious you know the difference just around sexuality and it wasn't like west africans were just all about like sex parties but just relative to the dominant white puritan culture here yes it was sexual liberation and, and you're also
0: in a lot of ways arguing that you would prefer that culture to the horrible puritanical culture
2: yeah right i mean who wouldn't well, this explains the last 200 years of American popular culture. God damn it! This explains why every white boy we know listens to hip hop, right? And this has been going on for a long, 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 long time, all the way back to the original minstrels of the 1830s. Who, if you look at it, and this is my in my book, if you look at the words that they actually sang, they fucking loved black people and worshipped them and admired them, and most importantly literally wanted to be black and that's what they sang about because that what they saw on the plantations was a culture that was way more liberated about things like sex and work and pleasure and freedom than what you would get in a new england schoolhouse for fuck's sake um, and it was obvious to those guys who put on the black face they actually were trying to be black they really wanted to be black they weren't putting down the black people. They actually later on in the 19th century, yes, blackface was adopted by actual racists who did often use it to, de- to degrade and demean black people. But originally it was it was em- emulation and admiration. So that's and so black exploitation, right, is just so much part of that culture because here you have, and especially for men, and this is a really important thing. Gender in these movies is so important. Um for men, you know. Growing up in Berkeley, California in the 1970s, in a feminist household, in a feminist world, masculinity ain't allowed. It's not allowed. It's not allowed in the bi-coastal cities. It's not allowed among the liberal, the white liberal elites. You are not allowed to express masculinity. Well, guess what? When I turn on, <laughs> when I when I watch Superfly or Shaft or Damn near, or any one of those. Um, I'm seeing masculinity unleashed, and I'm seeing I am seeing it free, and I am seeing it like fly, and I am seeing it do terrible things, and I'm also seeing it do like exciting ph- phenomenal things, like fucking kill the the racist cop who murdered your sister, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, and, and, yeah,
1: and <laughs> it's one of the reasons why su- sweetback is going to be such an important, uh, you know film for the course especially as a starting point because pretty much everything that that just articulated is in that is in that film mm-hmm. you're talking about unbridled masculinity right in, <laughs> in that film and sexuality
2: right yeah um so that's why liberals have a problem with all this they don't like any of this they don't like black exploitation they don't like the way that we're talking about it Mm-mm. Uh, And what I want to say to that is, well, liberals, you have exposed yourselves as Puritans then. Because that's who has a problem with unbridled sexuality and unbridled masculinity and unbridled femininity in the person of of, uh, Foxy Brown and Pam Green. In other
0: words, they're actually conservatives.
2: Correct. 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 That is it. And they don't know it. Not only that, I mean, they're conservative Christians. Christian conservatives, just without the God, without the mystical stuff, but the the morality is exactly the same. They're Christian conservatives. They hate sex and they hate freedom.
0: And now a word from one of our sponsors.
3: I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reek's A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here, but there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved, friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust—a stretch. You can read about it on my website, BerlinRick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes and Noble. Thank you.
0: So it's it's always interested me. Uh, we sort of went all over the pop culture element. I mean, uh, things like uh, the writings of Iceberg Slim, the uh, black exploitation films, all these things sort of come together and have a really important influence on on hip hop and, and popular culture. So, you know, how do you think we should understand how all of these things sort of connect and what they mean to the culture we love, the popular culture we love?
2: That's for Doctor Hill.
0: Well, I think you know how they connect is
1: the starting point of who are uh, who are creating these these cultures or subcultures, who are featured in these cultures cultures or subcultures, are pretty much all Black poor and working class people. You know, hip hop doesn't start in the nightclubs; it starts in the park, right? You know, it's it starts at 1520 Cedric Avenue, it starts in the projects, projects, you know, it doesn't start with, you know, a rich, the, the DJs is our, the DJs are rich. He's an immigrant from Jamaica, right. You know um, there is no electricity. He has to plug, find electricity and plug into the lampposts. You know <laughs> um, there are no instruments. He has to go to the record store and uh, and buy 45s. Or what was it in 1977? Steal all the records and the, and the equipment. The the blackout that that was. In, in oh yeah, New York.
2: the blackout. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. So that that the blackout actually in, is is in, is just as responsible for the success of hip hop because you have a whole lot of people were able to yep. snatch and grab <laughs> and, and and learn how to DJ as a result of that equipment. So you're talking about you know. You know, poor and working class. You know, culture, black culture. I would, I would definitely say even Puerto Rican culture. You know, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, in terms of hip hop, explicitly. But you really can't get around that when it comes to to understanding many of the themes that are in the films, um, because so many of the heroes of, uh, and heroes for that matter, in these black exploitation films, um, you know, come from that element. You know, and that's what I love to love about it too. You just, know, it's, it's not like the, it, it, you know. Um, presidents and uh, Congress and p- politicians and preachers—these aren't the heroes of these films, right? You know? Uh, um, you know, they're there, you know, as kind of ancillary characters because you know you have to deal with them because they're a part of the establishment. But the people who are winning, the 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 the, the major um, you know players in these films are you know those who who attempt to skirt the system, you know. Um, those who don't necessarily even have a voice in the larger, who are ignored in the, in the, in uh, you know, in the larger canon. And I think that's one of the great things about, about these films is that they contribute something powerful to um, uh, American cinema that, you know, transforms the way we understand, you know, the way movie making is done. I mean, if that's, that's
2: that's the, the, um, you know, Hollywood has become increasingly straight-jacketed um, aesthetically. Um, And it's funny, you know, Jack Mason, also known as Jack the Perfume Nationalist, who's been on my show a number of times, is kind of really brilliant on this, Um, uh, talking about sort of how in the 2010s sort of neoliberal culture became ascendant and really neutered, you know, um, uh, Hollywood especially. And so that, you know, everything, everything's been de-sexed. Um, and of course the, what used to be called political correctness now is wokeness or whatever. And, you know, the, the strict policing of language and, you know, my God, anything that might even possibly be an ethnic joke is, you know, forbidden, et cetera, to watch five minutes of any black exploitation movie that we're going to watch in this. It's just like, you'd, like the hair stands up on your back. Cause you're like, Whoa, these people, this is it's freedom, man. And freedom again, is also, is also a junkie you know, dying on, a, on the floor of a project with a needle in his arm, okay? That's also freedom, right? And I want to I be really clear, like neither one of us is glorifying this, right? Or romanticizing it. What we're saying is there's a whole lot of good stuff in that low class, you know, non-respectable black working class culture that is ignored um, or worse, is shunned to everyone's detriment, you know, except for those of us who watch pop culture and picked and picked up pieces of black working class culture through that and have all benefited anyway. So that's, it's just it, but the, the way these movies are made and what they're allowed to do and, and it's just uh and the violence, you know, is kind of like, it's cartoonish. So it's not really, well, yeah, they're, they're ultimately, yeah.
0: you know, they're, they're genre films. So they're, yeah. they're sort of like melodramas. They're meant to appeal to the emotions. And I mean, they, they work at what they're supposed to do. You know, one of my favorites, I know you guys aren't covering it necessarily in the course, but I always liked um, Larry Cohen's black Caesar with um, sure. Fred Williamson, you know, because that scene where he beats the shit out of the racist cop, I'm like, yeah. Oh, that's exhilarating. You know, exactly. We see all the, these horrible incidents of what cops do to people, uh, white and black and, and everyone in between. And it's like, Oh, that is cathartic to see that. Let me,
2: let me talk a minute about the context because this is really crucial, you know, so we're talking about the early seventies. Well, I mean, it's funny. He just, he just died, but until then um, Sidney Poitier was, was black people in Hollywood period. Like it was Sidney Poitier. That was, you know, black people in Hollywood was Sidney Poitier. He was in all the movies about black stuff, black issues, you know, whenever they needed a black character, a black star, Sidney Poitier. Okay. Sidney Poitier in every single role, I think this is right. um, Played the perfect human being. He was the perfect American, the perfect man, the perfect gentleman, self-sacrificing, heroic, um, and was always willing to, to lay his body on the line for his white friends especially, um, to be a, just the perfect citizen you know, and that's, you know, that was respectability politics played out in Hollywood um, at that time. And that was the civil rights movement's intervention into Hollywood. They replaced D.W. Griffith's outright good old-fashioned racism, right, with this new thing, which I call racial liberalism, assimilationism, the stuff we've been talking about, respectability politics, right? So that's, so you start with, like, Hollywood has, you know, D.W. Griffiths, step and fetch it, et cetera, you know, the, the good old fashioned, like old school racism until the 1940s. Then the liberals come in, right, and replace it with Sidney Poitier and respectability politics, and all black men have to be like Barack Obama and perfect. Um, that's, that's the setting for black exploitation. That's how radical this shit is. Like when Melvin Van Peebles made that movie, like, I, I mean, it was like setting fire to the theater. You know, I mean, in terms of what was being done to the like the image of black people being presented on the screen, I mean, he was doing exactly the opposite of what you were supposed to do. The exact opposite.
1: Ironically, the other respectable person who's sitting next to Sidney Poitier in a lot of his movies is Bill Cosby. Yeah, I know. Bill Cosby finances, right? partially, Partially finances knowing bad people's sweet backs badass. It gives him a fifty thousand dollar loan, right? right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's so fascinating to see his own trajectory from you know his early start off to like you know financing these films and then eventually becoming the respectability, you know. The, the arbiter the carrier of respectability politics all the way up and, into the 1980s and
2: then, and then and then the example of the least respectable person in the it, world it, the, the it, mass it, rapist i mean it, like, absolutely, like absolutely cosby's arc is one of the weirdest ever yeah it, it, yeah it,
0: it really is, it really God, is. so yeah. if i have listeners that are unfamiliar uh yeah with the plots like i, I don't want to give away anything if they mm-hmm. haven't seen it or if they're planning to watch these movies uh in prep for the course but like w- what what is Sweet Sweet Sweetback's badass song because Melvin Van Peebles, I think, is, uh, you know, someone that younger people should know more about because, I mean, he was a brilliant artist.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, to me, like the most important thing, I don't know, there's so many important things about the movie, but the most important thing for me is the main character's um, background, I guess you would call it. So he's, you know, basically born and raised in a brothel, you know, by what we now call sex workers um and becomes famous for his sexual prowess. Right. So like right off the bat, we're doing everything wrong here. You know, like this is like you're not and this is the, and oh, and, and most importantly, he's the hero. He is a heroic figure. Right. And the last time. Oh, this is very important, by the way, the last time Hollywood allowed for Criminals basically to be heroes was in the night early 1930s before the motion picture production code. That the pick the code made it basically illegal within Hollywood to to portray gangsters or criminals in, in any positive light. The old gangster movies of the early 30s did that though. So the black exploitation is also a throwback to those early gangster movies. When the gangster was the protagonist, the hero, you kind of identified with him, right? That's what the exploitation movies do so boldly. You're identifying, you're being asked to identify with pimps and prostitutes and drug dealers. And you do. And you, and you cheer when they, you know, save the neighborhood from the racist cops. Uh, so anyway, that's Sweet Beck. I mean, he, he starts out like as the worst person in American society, someone who should never do anything good at all. And he becomes the hero of the movie.
1: And, 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 and he starts off as a child in a brothel. It's not even, he doesn't yeah. even start off as a, he's not, even, he's not an adult starting. He's raised. <laughs> he's
2: raised in the brothel. He's yeah. raised in the brothel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, 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 my, and as a side note, you know, uh, Melvin Van Peoples uses his son, Mario Van Peoples who eventually becomes a filmmaker in that scene. I think he's like 11 or 12 years old. Right. Full frontal nudity, by the way, it's like a whole... Yeah. Right, it's really, really out there. Yep.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: A lot of the movies were rated X, by the way, originally.
0: Oh, really? I didn't know that.
2: Several of them. Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me too because you know when I've talked about these films with people, and and maybe Tomasi can comment on on this criticism that I've heard of black exploitation films. The criticism I hear a lot is, "Okay, so these films were an important milestone." Uh, for black actors and and actresses like Pam Greer, Yafit Kodo, and uh, so, so so many, uh, uh, Fred Williamson, Jim Brown, and and so many others. But so many of them, with the exception of uh, filmmakers like Melvin Van Peebles, so many of them are made by, you know, white filmmakers like Larry Cohen uh, or Jack Hill. I don't like that criticism. I I I think that that gets into like very weird territory of like, we just have like completely separatist films, but I, w- I was wondering if you could comment on what you both think of that criticism that well, these films are all made by the the white man's perspective because of the director.
1: No, I mean, I. I mm. So when mm-hmm. when 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 someone says the white man's perspective, I have to figure out well, what particular perspective is that individual white does that individual white man have? I mean, not <laughs> all white men have the same perspective. I'm not gonna put. Uh, um, uh, uh, I'm not gonna put someone who's who's racist like D.W. Griffith in the same category as Norman Lear. <laughs> These are two white men who are, who are doing two totally different types of content. So, you know, it, that's it, that <laughs> that that type of argument just doesn't meet the snuff test as far as I'm concerned. Oh
2: man, I. I got complicated feelings about this. It's weird. I don't know. Um, Well, I mean, it should be obvious to anyone watching that um, we are like, (laughs) we're not, we're not exactly race essentialists when it comes to things like this. And, you know, according to American culture, notice how, notice my language, according to American culture, Kamasi is black and I am white. um, And yet I am part of, I am co-teaching a course that is uh, on black history, but, then again it's a course on movies actually many of which as you just said jg are made produced by white guys so it's awfully interesting and complicated which is maybe the reason it should be taught co-taught by a white guy and a black guy um but i mean so politically i mean kamasi and i agree completely on this what he just said of course politically is my position on shit like this it's like the fuck you what's the art i don't want to know about his skin what's his art you know, now, then again, okay, having just said that, having having said my made my race, my anti race essentialism clear and upfront, um, you know, like um, a couple a few centuries of people identifying as <laughs> this or that race you know, shape the way they lived and think and behave and do stuff and whether they make music and how they make music and what kinds of movies they make and how they talk and walk and whether they think work is the best thing in the world and whether they think sex is wicked and yada, yada. So what do you do with that? Right. Formations, cultural formations around race. God damn it. Unfortunately, have been made. And unfortunately, many of those cultural formations, like precisely the ones we're talking about in this course, have been largely positive. Like, you know, a lot of black, like everybody loves black popular culture nowadays, right? Everybody talks about how great jazz is it wasn't always the case. But, you know, now now oh, that's our Hall of Fame, you know, American Cultural Hall of Fame is all black people now. Um, well, I mean, that comes from the bottom that that culture comes from the bottom, the worst, the scum, the people we thought were not even uh, human beings. Yeah. Um, so um, there you go. Black exploitation is it says more about American culture and history I think than any other genre in Hollywood. So that,
0: there's one last thing I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, because I know we're running up against the hour but uh, you know it's interesting. I almost feel like in some ways there's been an attempt, maybe not a conscious attempt by Hollywood, but sort of an attempt at almost like mainstreaming black exploitation. I mean we recently had uh, the Rudy Ray Moore biopic. And mm-hmm. I, I thought that was very good and I liked it a lot. Uh, but I saw a lot of people that watched that movie and then they watched the original Dolomite. They said, oh, I love My Name is Dolomite. That was awesome. But I don't get it. Why do people like Dolomite? To which I respond, I don't know, because it's hilarious. And that's what it was meant to be. It was meant to be, you know, a, a fun comedy for you to enjoy. That's the whole point of the biopic. Uh, do, you, do you think in some ways that sort of attempt it you Know making this respectable has like um negative impacts in any way, uh,
2: wait. Oh, oh, you're talking about the Eddie Murphy movie,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, like, I I think like some people watch that movie and don't really get
2: yeah. the actual Dolomite movie. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, we yeah. had well, Kamasi and I had slightly different takes on it. Um, oh, really? I, I'd love to hear, yeah, slight. I think so. I can't remember exactly what we, I've you're, I mean, you, I think you liked it a little more than I did, but I don't have a strong feeling about it. I didn't I didn't think it was that great because I guess maybe this is OK. Maybe this is what it is. I guess it was a little too respectable for for what it was depicting. Maybe. I don't yeah. know. I, don't, I thought. I know.
1: Yeah, I thought for me, what what I appreciated about it is it, it gives. My thing is, it gives a new generation an opportunity to understand who Rudy Ray Moore was. What mm-hmm. I liked about it wasn't even so much aesthetically what they were saying about Rudy Ray Moore. I guess the 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 latent black nationalist in me <laughs> appreciated his grind, his hustle, like his his ability to like yeah. you know. Oh, Eddie Murphy really did a great job of talking about his struggles in business, you know, and how Rudy Ray Moore really really like hit the hit the ground hard, trying to raise money to create this particular product, and that to me was emblematic of what a lot of I mean, it, you know, it's it's what Melvin Van Peoples had to do. It's what so many other black filmmakers in the '70s had to do, um, um, who were trying to get their films made, and even in the '80s, quite frankly, it's what Spike had to do. Right? You know, mm-hmm. like you yeah. know, so so for me, like I appreciated the documenting of the of the process of what it means to create art when you, especially art within uh, a, an industry that is competing against these multi-million-dollar, you know, products. And you don't have any money, and you and you and you're not a filmmaker. I mean, dude, literally, and I love the scene in the movie. Dude was a, you know, a fledgling comedian who learned his kind of gift of gab from, you know, drunk dudes in the alley.
2: Yeah, I love that. <laughs> you know, were yeah. going, like,
1: that scene was just so powerful to yeah, me. Yeah, that was good. And so I I appreciated the 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 documenting the process. You know mm-hmm. of what of what it took to actually you know make film, and for me as a filmmaker, I appreciated that too because I know how hard it is to raise to raise money to
2: mm-hmm. make. Film.
0: <laughs> yeah, I definitely thought it was a great film. I just hope that people go back and watch the originals the original, and oh, like yeah. respect them. I hope it's not like a thing where it's like, oh, I watched Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Now I'm going to go back and make fun of all these films. You know, like. It, I, I don't know. I, I think there's something so, aesthetically pleasing about these
2: films. I just find them so stunning. Like they're just yeah. stunning. Cause you just, as I said before, you know, they're so alien to our current culture that, that it's, it's they're exotic now, you know? Um, and, and it's a also, punch, you know, Oh boy. And also, um, for me, it just, it gives me a little hope that maybe we can live maybe sometime in the future in a somewhat more liberated culture because you do see the freedom there. Um, with all the bad elements of it too, good and bad, but a whole lot of good that we're missing nowadays. So, to me, those movies are about freedom more than anything else.
0: Yeah. And Any uh, closing and comment, Kamisi, and then we can uh, you know, wrap up here by saying how people can enroll in the course.
2: Oh yeah, well, say that first. Uh, just go to renegadeuniversity.com. It's really easy. It'll, you'll see it right on the front page starting on Tuesday nights. Um, it's live, but if you miss a session, you can watch it um, by streaming video. And yeah, we're going to be watching uh, seven different courses, seven different films, and just go click on the course webpage and you'll see those films, many of which we talked about tonight. Yeah, and that's, that's really it. Um, it's going to be, I think, an incredibly fun course. I can't wait for it. And
0: uh, Kamasi, did you have anything you wanted to say in closing about the course or just what you hope listeners of my show get out of the conversation the three of us have been having? Watch the movies.
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: that, that, that's the most important thing is watch the movies, enjoy the movies for what they are, get a chance to see a slice of American life, Black life that you, you, you just don't see nowadays. And if you're interested in the aesthetics like I am, Watch the movie and then listen to people like Snoop, you know, listen to people yes. like Drake, because you're going to hear a lot of those songs in that in those films and those references from, you know, uh, you know, in my generation, that generation of hip hop artists, um, you know, in in the in their music. So watch the watch the movies and and definitely if you're interested, take the course, please,
0: because we're gonna have a, we're just gonna we're gonna learn a lot, but we're gonna have a good time as well.
2: Such a good time.
0: Well, I want to thank you again, Thaddeus Russell and Kamasi <laughs> Hill for coming on Parallax Views.
2: Thanks, man. Appreciate Great. it very much.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Thaddeus Russell and Kamasi Hill about their upcoming Renegade University course on Black Blaxploitation Cinema, which starts this Tuesday, March 1st. Please visit Renegade University for details. And as always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, support me at Patreon.com slash Parallax Views. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier, with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. Again, that's Patreon.com slash Parallax Views. And with that being said,
4: When Foxy Brown comes to town, all the brothers gather round, because she can really shake them down. Foxy lady, Foxy lady. Pam Grier, that one chick hit squad who creamed you as coffee, is back to do a job on the mob as Foxy Brown.
2: You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out
4: of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Crazy. There's no telling what she'll do. She's sweet brown sugar with a touch of spice. If you see a man anywhere, send him in because I do need a man. And murder if you don't treat her nice. Sounds like a public menace. show sure do. Foxy's got guts. Oh! No ifs, ands, or buts. I better warn you, I got a black belt in karate. And I got my black belt in bar stools. She won't budge when she carries a grudge. I want justice for all of them, whose lives are bought and sold, so that a few big shots
1: can climb up on their backs.
3: Sister, I think what you're asking for is revenge.
4: So there ain't no hope for dudes who deal dope.
1: I swear, baby, I don't know what you're talking about.
3: We're gonna kill ourselves a couple of niggas.
4: Have no fear. Pam Grier is here as Foxy. Foxy Brown.